Welcome to Alive and Kicking, the 90s football podcast. The podcast that's more 90s than Super Mario World, Super Mario Kart, Street Fighter 2, Super Punch-Out, Donkey Kong, Mega Man, Kirby, Yoshi's, oh and Star Fox. Oh the mini SNES, 90s retro game in heaven. My name's Ash Rose, your host and guide on this, the original 1990s football podcast, Alive and Kicking. Thank you very much for joining us once again and hitting that download button faster than a Linford Christie medal at Barcelona 92. Yes, I'm throwing out all the 90s references today because to celebrate, well, it's the end of a countdown, isn't it? Yes, we've reached the end of this series within a series, I suppose it is, of these look back at season by season of the 1990s as we look back at 1998 99, a season laden with Man United and that treble winning season, which we'll get into in just a bit, uh, follows on from our last episode of 97 98, which I really enjoyed um, as per usual. But it was really nice to cover Barnsley only because it's something we haven't really gone into on the podcast before. But their season in the Premier League that year, talking with Giles Alderson, who uh, was great stuff and has some great memories, a lot of Ashley Wald. Come on the show, Ashley. You, you like to read tweets. Come on the show and talk to us about that season. But a lot of Ashley Ward on that episode, uh, as well as Arsenal, of course, and that amazing, probably I agree with our guest, Chas Nuki Burden, the Arsenal fan and, and journalist, that that was probably the best Wenger team for me. I know the Invincibles obviously did uh, what they did that season by going unbeaten, but that team under Arsene Wenger, and of course with Dennis Bergkamp and that memorable season that he had, was probably my favourite Arsenal team to watch as well. Um, I mean, they were still going the season after as well, which is a lovely segue into talking about 1998-99 and today's guests. Um, we do cover that close title race and, of course, that epic at Villa Park as Man United went on the way to the treble. And we've got Matthew Christ back on the show, who's become kind of our Manchester United voice during this series. We did have Simon Needle before as well, both which are brilliant at doing what they do. And I'm sure both will be back on the podcast very, very soon. We've also got a debutant today in BBC journalist and author Chris Slegg. And he's got a brilliant new book out, very apt for us here at Alive and Kick In. It's called The Team That Dare To Do, and it covers Tottenham's 1994-95 season. He's teamed up with Jerry Francis, who was manager during that campaign, to write this brilliant, brilliant book. I haven't read it all. I've read a bit, and I'm not a Tottenham fan, but I'm really, really enjoying the read. There's a foreword also by Jürgen Klinsmann, and the cover is adorned by his face doing that famous dive at Hillsborough on the first uh, day of the season wearing that beautiful away kit, the purple one, which didn't quite manage my top five kits when we did our top five kit uh, episode with John Devlin, but I think it may squeeze into my top ten, that kit. Very, very nice. But it's a great book. Um, Put it on your Christmas list. Yes, we're talking Christmas already, the most wonderful time of the year, if you are a Tottenham fan or just a fan of the 90s. But also check out the AK90s Twitter feed later on after this episode because I've got a copy sitting right next to me here. Another copy, a spare copy, not the one I've read. So don't worry, it's not going to be all dog-eared. But a spare copy for you guys to win. So if you are a Tottenham fan, are a fan of the 90s, which I'm sure you are because you're listening to this podcast, then go onto Twitter later tonight. Tweet or retweet the the pin tweet that I'll put on there and you could win yourself a copy of Chris's brand new book. And we'll talk to him on today's podcast about the 1998-99 season uh, where Tottenham won the Worthington Cup as it was. The only trophy that made I didn't win that season that they were entered to. So yeah, we've got Matthew Christ and Chris talking 1998-99 on today's show, which we'll get to in just a second. But I want to throw out what we do next 
to you guys. I'm probably going to put this out on a poll, possibly, on Twitter. So have a look on the Twitter feed at AK90s. But uh, as we've reached the end of the countdown, the sort of mini-series that we'll be doing here on Alive and Kicking, I wanted to ask you guys what you've been enjoying and what you'd like us to do next, what you'd like us to talk about. Do you want to continue what we've been doing, where we cover a theme, get guys around the table and just talk about that theme in general, which is what we've been doing pretty much uh, ever since we started, would you like us to do something different, uh, like the sort of Levens episodes that we've done? We did a great one with Joel Young a few episodes back where we did a team built up of the tournaments from the 1990s, which I thought was a really enjoyable way to make an eleven. We also did a great one with Sid Lambert uh, a few months ago where we looked at sort of the players that didn't quite reach their potential, put them in eleven. Uh, apt to his book uh, Cashing In by Sid um, so if you want to do more 11s like that I'm sure we can come up with brilliant 90s 11s we did our team of the 90s as well way back go back in the archives and listen to that controversial episode I would say where a certain man was left out much to my dismay uh, do you want to do more AK90s meets we did that episode for episode 50 with Alexi Lalas so where it was just me and him we chatted through his career we could do a few more like that we got a few irons in the fire with certain players so if you like those sort of things vote for that or even something different i've been thinking of maybe a list episode i know we did top five kits maybe we'll do a few more top fives we have done great goals although we didn't rate them we did talk about them so maybe we'll do something like that i'll put it on a poll on twitter let me know what you think and then we'll we'll proceed from there but we've don't worry we haven't run out of ideas yet we just thought we'd get feedback from you guys the listeners who thought and and, and you know who have been kind enough to download us and listen to us and engage with us we want to know what you want so let us know on twitter at ak90s and then we'll we'll go from there guys we will go from there i've been trying to keep this one this intro a little bit shorter because i was told uh the weekend by a friend of the show somebody's been on a couple of times paddy o'sullivan i've been talking too much and what you couldn't believe this he's literally just texted me as well not about that but i had a brilliant text from him just a minute ago that made me smile have to include it in the intro and he just texted me to say just had a meeting with someone whose surname is gunchev imagine my disappointment to learn his first name wasn't boncho <laughs> yes boncho gunchev he should be on the uh, 90s players at time forgot list shouldn't they brilliant thank you very much paddy and i'm going to try and keep this shorter than normal so let's go to your memories of this season again back to the twitter feed at ak90s i did put the uh, season video vhs battle for the fa carling premiership from sky sports the cover to that on twitter a few days ago and asked for your memories of 1998-99 and uh, quite a few of you got in touch so thank you very much uh, firstly to the aforementioned Simon Needle he's back again he said everything about United Arsenal being brilliant such a great season very true Kenny Ken at Kenny Ken 1972 big Arsenal man in the Arsenal world he says bad ones Ash Villa Park 1999 of course we cover that uh, Stell at Honor Madness says Stam's volley at Filbert Street Canu's goal at White Hart Lane and Tim Sherwood screaming for a foul before Beckham equalised on the final day we cover bits of that I forgot about Canu's goal was that season what bloody brilliant goal that was uh, well remembered there Stell Matthew Lester at Matt underscore Lester says Schalskar's performance in United's 8-1 win at Forest yes we talk about that Anthony Carr at Anthony Carr says, Dion Dublin smashing them in for fun in his first few games after signing for Villa. Yeah, it was something I forgot until I was researching back at this uh, this episode. You completely forgot how brilliant Villa were for the first half of that season, leading the title charge until they sort of crashed at Christmas. And Dion Dublin, what a signing he was. He got into the England squad, didn't he, that season, if I remember rightly. Actually, thinking about it, here's a random memory. I went to Party in the Park 
that year. That must have been 1999, or maybe it was 98. But I remember Dion being there for some reason, and everyone giving him a good pop, because he was really on song, really in the England fold at that point. Very random. Back to these memories, though. Stuart Bateman, at S Bateman 76, says, The best season ever. Arsenal, absolutely brilliant. Chelsea strong until April. United raised game because of them. Very true. It was a great title race, as we mentioned in the show. Jay Reid at Simply Jambo says, Champions League final, Giggs goal, semi-final game in the cup. Yeah, I mean, obviously we talk about that. One of the greatest games, one of the greatest goals of the 90s at Villa Park. Uh, Viraj Oja, I think I've pronounced that correctly. Sorry if I haven't, mate. Uh, Nelson Vivas at Ellen Road. I think he means the game uh, that Jimmy Floyd Hasselbank scored and pretty much ended Arsenal's title hopes that season. We do cover that. And lastly, Ricky Kitchen at Ricky Kitchen. Pretty unremarkable season, if I remember correctly. Um, I wonder if Ricky's an Arsenal fan. Let's have a look. Let's make sure. I'm not sure. But yeah, wasn't unremarkable if you're a... Unremarkable, easy for me to say, if you were a Man United fan. But let's get to it. I'm keeping this shorter, as asked, and getting straight on with the show. We also got a brilliant, brilliant guest today talking... Well, I could have talked to him forever, actually. But he talks the this season. He talks 94, 95, going back to uh, Chris's book. Talks Euro 96, he talks France 98, as well as some fun questions about some memorabilia of the 1990s as well. He's former England and Tottenham and Portsmouth, if you remember rightly, winger Darren Anderton is today's guest on Alive and Kicking. But first, here's me, Ash Rose, and my guest, Matthew Christ and Chris Legg, talking 1998-99 here on Alive and Kicking. Here we go then. It's the last in our countdown series here on Alive and Kicking. We've reached the end of the decade. It's 1998 99. I can't even talk or say that season without every Man United fan in the world. A big smile on their face. So we couldn't do that season without our resident Man United man. He's back after a little break. He's a little bit fragile after a weekend wedding as well. Um, he's journalist for a plethora of football outlets. Matthew Christ. How you doing, Matthew? Hello, Matt. Good to be back. How's it going? It's good, yeah. And how, I was just talking off, off air about your wedding. You're feeling a little bit fragile, aren't you? Yeah. Yeah, well, first things first, it wasn't my wedding. Let's get that straight. Um, no, it was a friend of mine's wedding Saturday, and then we obviously had a few post-wedding drinks yesterday. But I was very professional. I was very loyal to the uh, to the cause and made sure I was tucked up in bed by midnight last night. So uh, I could have felt a lot worse. But, That's um, good. But, but there's a bit of an end-of-term feel to this podcast because uh, I, I was on the first one, and now we're at the last one, and it's been... Uh, it's been a bit of an emotional journey, hasn't yeah, it? It's for you, for me. Well, it's, a, it's a May United decade, as we've learned throughout this little mini-series we've done. So, yeah, we have reached the end of that. Not sure what we're going to do next. Hopefully, all the listeners will tell us, but we'll keep online on AK90s for that. Uh, join us as well to talk outside of Manchester United, because there were other things that happened that season, especially at White Hart Lane. Um, it's quite nice, actually. It kind of works quite well, because this guy is a BBC journalist. Chris Slegg, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Ash. Yeah, we won the big one. You know, man, you could have the treble. <laughs> we got the Worthington Cup in exactly. 1999. So, uh, yeah, very special memories for me as well of that season. Not not a great season, but at least there was a, a trophy at the end of it uh, for Tottenham. And, and they don't come around often, even even for a club uh, as, as, as big comparatively as, as Spurs are to, to many other clubs. Obviously, not, not quite as big as uh, Manchester United, but... Even a club of our size, we don't tend to win an awful lot of silverware. Indeed. But talking of good seasons, you've written a, a book recently that's just come out as well, which I've got sitting next to me, and I've started to flick through. Very good. It's on the 1994-95 season, which we have done on this uh, podcast. Go back into the archive and listen to it. It's called The Team Who, That Dared to Do, of course. 
Um, just quickly tell us about the book because we've got Joe Francis involved. There's a few other footballers in it as well. Tell us about it. Chris. Yeah, yeah, I wrote it along with Jerry Francis, who, who took over as Tottenham manager during during that season. I I started off wanting to. It was a very special season to me. It was it's kind of like my team that that season. Mm. Incredible. Incredible season, all the highs and lows. Jurgen Klinsmann arriving, Alan Sugar uh, taking the FA to court to, to fight and overturn the the twelve point deduction, which then became the six point deduction, which which was then overturned completely. Jerry Francis coming in, really tightening up uh, what had been a, a very porous defence, and we played under under Jerry Francis for eighteen months. We played some really good football, and then obviously it, it all went wrong as it so often did with so many managers at Tottenham. But ninety four, ninety five stands out to me as one of the, the seasons that I've enjoyed most. And it's kind of funny what we're talking about there. We we, we won a trophy in 1998-99, which was very special. But that season, for a lot of Tottenham fans, won't be anywhere near as special as, as 94-95 was. I think for, for many fans of many clubs, trophies don't really come along. And there's special seasons that, that don't end in silverware. And for me, it was 94-95. And that's why I wrote this book, The Team That Dared To Do. I, I didn't uh, envisage writing it with Jerry to start with. I was going around meeting the... Former players like Darren Anderson, who, who spoke to me, Teddy Sheringham, David Howes. I managed to get a word with Klinsman himself. Uh, but when I met Jerry, he mentioned he had written diaries at the time because oh, right. uh, that, that season left such an impression on him. So we decided to incorporate those diaries into the book and we worked together. So, yeah, it's the team that they had to do by Jerry Francis and Chris Slegg. Available on Amazon. I'll just Brilliant. get that plug in. Hopefully yeah. in a few bookshops before Christmas as well. And stay tuned as well. We've got a copy for you guys to win. So look, have a look on the Twitter thing yeah. as well. So we've got a copy of that. Um, it's a great picture of Klinsman on the cover. And I have to say, I know I'm a kit geek, but that away kit in that season was a very special Tottenham kit, that purple one. Love that kit. I loved it too. I love that kit, yeah. And there's a lovely purple lovely jacket kit. as well, a picture of Jerry Francis and a great manager's jacket in that book as well. Great season, great season. Anyway, we're talking 98, 99. We've gone a little bit forward from that at the moment. Yes. And as Chris is our first-time debutant on the show, that means I get to ask him our favourite first question. Your favourite Tottenham player of the 90s, Chris? Well, yeah, I mean, it has to be Klinsman because that's what inspired me to write this book. Just the memories of that season, they're having a, a former World Cup winner, arrive at Tottenham when we were in all sorts of uh, problems. We'd only just stayed up the year before. Then we'd been hit with this 12-point deduction for uh, financial irregularities under a, a previous regime. Uh, that got halved to, to six points. But a lot of people would have thought, you know, Tottenham are fighting a losing battle here because they just stayed up. They're starting the season on minus six. And lo and behold, Alan Sugar went out and signed Klinsman, who'd got five goals at, at that summer's World Cup. Also got um, Dumitrescu, who'd been playing so well for Romania out in, in the USA. And then Jika Pescu arrived a month later as well. But for me, just the fact that Klinsman chose to come to us, it didn't make any sense. I remember being on a, a family holiday in, in in Greece. My brother came running up to me. He bought an English newspaper. And on the back page, it was Klinsman signs for Tottenham. This wasn't speculation. This wasn't, mm -hmm. you know, rumours. This signing had come out of nowhere. It didn't, no one had really hinted at it. It didn't make any sense. And then it, 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 it lived up to its billing. You know, we didn't have a, a, a superstar coming over thinking he was too big for his boots. He just bought into the, the team ethic. From the very first game, he got a, a brilliant uh, diving header at Sheffield Wednesday, which proved to be the winner on the opening day. We won 4-3. And then his home debut is one of the most uh, vivid memories I have as a Spurs fan. His overhead kick mm. against Everton. That's that, a night that game, ahead. isn't it? It was a night game yeah. under the lights. Um, overhead kick about 20 minutes into that game. Uh, then he got a header a few minutes after that, and we—I mean, we—we we only won that game in the end, two-one. But in the first half, we were absolutely breathtaking. The football we were playing, we, we should have been sharing and missed a penalty just before the break. We should, could have been three, four, five up at half-time, and just have Klinsman there. He scores so many sensational goals 
that season. He, he won over the English media because obviously he had this reputation, which even I would agree with this deserved reputation. He, he I, In my eyes, he had committed dives in, in the past. He would probably still dispute that. Um, but he, there wasn't any of that when he came to England. He, he changed his game. He, he, he wasn't trying to get away with any of that. And he, he won the whole of the, the media round. He, he turned out to be uh, the Football Writers Player of the Year at the mm. end of the season as well. And yeah, for me, he was uh, definitely one of my favourite Tottenham players of all time and certainly my favourite Tottenham player of the 90s. Matthew, just bringing you in quickly, I mean, as a Man United fan who signed probably you know a lot of fantastic players in that decade, what did you make at the time of Tottenham signing Klinsman? Yeah, well, I think it was very. It, it was typical of that era in the Premier League, wasn't it? Clubs were, were seemed dead keen to bring in um, foreign stars. It was still a bit of a novelty then, mm. unlike now. It's not. It's just no one bats an eyelid. But back then, it was it was it was quite a big deal. But uh, but I mean, Klinsman. There were a lot that didn't succeed. Most of which we've spoken about on this this podcast. But um, the Klinsman was probably along with him and Cantona, probably the most iconic. Sort of foreign players to come in, maybe Viali at Chelsea, but I mean, what a what a player! I mean, I can see from a Tottenham point of view why he was so popular because he, I loved him anyway. I loved him as a player for for Germany and when he played in in Italy, so I can see why Tottenham fans would have absolutely loved it. And, and I agree about that ninety four ninety five season. I just thought Tottenham were fantastic to watch that that season um, going forward. They obviously they're a bit like. You could probably say they're a bit like Liverpool now. They, they were brilliant going forward. weren't necessarily that good at the back, but um, well, but a fantastic team to watch. Stuart Nethercott never really lived up to his uh, his billing in the end, did he? <laughs> no, but it, it was gung gung ho football at its best, wasn't it? Yeah. You know, you'll, you score three, we'll score four, that kind of thing. Which which is what happened on that opening day, wasn't it? When Klinsman made his debut, I think that was four three at Sheffield Wednesday. So yeah, it was that, indeed. Yeah, so that's pretty much set the that set the. the, the pace for what was going to what was going to come so from yeah from a united point of view i had absolutely no problem with with Klinsman. i liked his attitude i know he was a bit of a pantomime villain as well but i think he he won people over pretty quickly um and i, I don't think you could really have a bad word against him really unless he died and won a penalty against you but um yeah and I also remember him scoring at Anfield in a cup tie and knocking Liverpool out of the FA Cup, yeah, which made, yeah. made, made my all, day. It's well. always good for a Man United fan. Um, Chris, then, yeah. going back to your little football CV, outside of White Hart Lane, then your favourite player of the 90s? Yeah, well, I, don't, I, I wouldn't. I, I don't know if I could say favourite at the time. He used to annoy me, but I'll, I'll have to go for a Man U player. And I, I played to a very, very, very limited level, as in my school C team in goal. So I always look out for, for good goalkeepers and Peter Schmeichel. Yeah. Peter Schmeichel's the greatest goalkeeper still that I've ever seen in my in my life. It was just amazing watching him throughout the night. It's very frustrating for for all opposition fans, but I think he's still the only goalkeeper in a one on one situation. He was the favourite, yeah. to win it. Yeah. You know, you know, strikers through on goal, you expect them to score. With Schmeichel, you didn't. You think he he would somehow find a way, as he so often did, uh, to stop it. And you know, in in that season I've written about, he, he saved a penalty from Sheringham. He was so often the man who he stopped us on many occasions and just, just a phenomenal goalkeeper. I, I yeah. still don't think there's been anyone in the Premier League that's reached his level. I think he changed I think he changed goalkeeping as well, didn't he? You know, yeah, I'd agree. He, he, sort of, he sort of made a goalkeeper, it's a bit of a simplistic point, but it, goalkeepers were almost a second thought years ago, weren't they? But, now, mm. but Schmeichel, Schmeichel almost made it, he just changed the way that keepers could, I mean, he must have won United sort of 20 points or so every season just from his... Just from, like you say, his antics coming out of the box, coming out, closing down players, throwing himself at players to, to put them off, not necessarily make a save, but he would, he would, mm. he would put, put the, the attacking player off 
and put doubt in their mind. So I think I chose Schmeichel as one of my players of the 90s for that exact reason, that he's just, you know, he's just completely revolutionised the, the, the way goalkeepers are. And, and you look at keepers now, the modern day keeper, and I think they've all, they've all learned from him, really, the way they, they attack the ball, they attack the, uh, the, the centre forward as they're coming through on goal. So huge influence on football, not just on United, I think. Mm, no, great choice, great choice. Uh, Matthew, we've reached the end of your CV, but I'm going to put you on the spot now. I thought of a new question sure. for you. Oh, yeah, I thought you might. <laughs> if you could bring anything back from the 90s to modern day football, what do you miss most? What would modern day football learn from the 90s if you could bring something back? Ooh. Well, off the top of my head, and we're going to obviously have to go back to the very early 90s here, but and it's a topical point, but I would bring back some form of ta- standing or yeah. terracing. And I, and I think... I know it's a I know it's a debate that's gone on and there's lots of uh, opinion about it, but it seems to me now that a lot of people are accepting that it can be done and possibly should be done. And um, I just think it would I just think it would hopefully if it's done properly, I think it would change the way people can watch football. Mm. Um, I still go to games and, and I find myself sat there bored and I, and I just, there's atmosphere you know grounds are really lacking in atmosphere and, and done properly, I think sections of say standing or rail seating could change football I hope hopefully it will um, I hope it's not done and then as half-heartedly and then you know tickets are still expensive and people can't get their hands on the tickets I think it's going to be done those tickets have got to be made accessible like they were in the 80s and 90s where people could just queue up and go and stand yeah. behind the goal because there's no point doing it and then selling those tickets for 100 quid to to tourists so, um, so that I mean it's a bit of a passion of mine anyway to, to uh, save standing and I've spoken to a lot of people about it obviously being based in Liverpool, it's a sensitive subject, but yeah. even a lot of people here, uh, you know, Liverpool fans are for it, done properly. Um, I know the Spirit of Shankly have done, had a lot of discussions about it and they've come out in favour. So um, there's a few other things I could probably think of to bring back, but that would be my my thing that I would love to bring back if no. possible. That's a good start to that question. We'll ask many more and see what we get, but I get a feeling yeah. a lot of people would say that. Um, but that's travel back then, 1998-99. Is getting feel slightly more modern this year? I mean, it was the season John Terry made his debut for Chelsea, so as somebody who's still playing, we had Gareth Barry last episode, so there are two players from the 90s that are actually pretty much still playing. I know John Terry's dropped a level, but he's still playing. So yeah, we're a little bit modern more times. The summer of 98, which we covered um, on the last show, was France 98, of course. Again, into this season, it was the David Beckham saga after what happened in the Argentina game. Before we get into the season, I mean, for you both, especially for Matthew first, I mean, how did you view Beckham going into that season on the back of off the back of what was, you know, such a dramatic moment at France 98. Yeah, I don't think from a United point of view, it, really people were that bothered about it, really. I mean, I know there's always there's always that debate with clubs like United, is, you know, do they care about England or what happened, what have you. And, and the funny thing is with Beckham, what happened at that World Cup, because he was so hated almost around the country, it almost galvanised his position with United fans. I remember going to West Ham and, you know, they were all, burning effigies of him and giving him death threats and everything and it was almost as though United fans thought right well if you're going to do that to our our player then we're going to stand by him and give it back so it it almost what he did I don't think affected him from a United point of view at all and it's funny to think now he's such a such a national hero Mm. to think how how hated he was um, you know at that period I mean he really was I mean if you remember he, he there was talk of him having to leave the country and have armed guards and all this just just because he just because of that that one moment, kick. but yeah. it, but he's turned it. Then, in fairness to him, he turned it right round, and it's almost it's almost forgotten about now, isn't it? Yeah. It's, uh, so, yeah, no, 
Chris, were you in agreement much about, about do, nothing, do, really? Do, well, do you know, I'd actually forgotten about the hostility there you go. until you just asked it there. And, and what hostility there was, yeah, incredible. And I do remember being in the match itself, being really angry with David Beckham for, for, for getting himself sent off so stupidly against Argentina. Uh, obviously, uh, you know, couldn't condone any of what happened with people burning effigies and stuff, a, a ridiculous level of abuse that he faced when he got back. But yeah, how he turned it around, because I'd, I'd actually forgotten about that, that level of hostility that he faced and to become a national hero and to be to be popular well outside of his his club uh, within the next decade and to do what he did for England on on many occasions but yeah I mean I think that 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 was such a devastating way to go out of the World Cup and so many kind of uh, I guess pantomime villains we've used that word already but in Sambati with two terrible penalties weren't they against Argentina but but yeah Beckham got the flak because it was just a, a silly thing to do and I think at the time uh, we all, well, some of us thought it was a harsh sending off, but nowadays you you definitely go for that, wouldn't you? And yeah, I think easy. a lot of us thought at the time that that Campbell, uh, the disallowed goal when when Shearer put his elbow in um, mm. Rowe's uh, face, we all thought that was harsh. But nowadays, clearly that goal would would not stand either. So um, yeah, a lot went against England in in that game, and uh, and and yeah, there was so much anger against Beckham, and all credit to him really for for how he turned his entire persona and, and, and career around after that to go on from strength to strength. Well, going into that season, Arsenal, of course, were champions. Uh, we talked about that on the last show after doing the double. May United's response to that, because they were chasing them down the season before, was signing Dwight York for £12 million, uh, which John Gregory wasn't too happy about. If I remember rightly, he was going to shoot him um, or something like that. <laughs> if I remember rightly, he said in the press conference, was a bit harsh, but that was their big signing. Uh, we're going to talk a lot of May United on this show, and we could do a whole pod just on them, because so much happened. So we'll try and fit in as much as possible in the three competitions. But I completely forgot this until I was doing my notes, actually, Matthew that Man United's start to the season wasn't that impressive. They they went four games without winning. Um it was they lost they lost their first home game to Borough in nine months uh in later in the, the first half of the season. The charity shield they lost to Arsenal. It wasn't you know, we think of this glorious season. It didn't get off to the best start, did it? No, it's funny you say that. I've got on my notes here, United started slowly. Because yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I like I said to you before the early 90s, I could pretty much tell you everything off the top of my head. The later 90s, for some reason, it must maybe get older and grow, grow enough or whatever. I yeah, actually had to goals, do... yeah? Well, yeah, yeah. Because actually, this 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 era here, I was working at FHM in London at this era. Oh, well, so there you go. Of... Yeah, so there was a lot of... <laughs> but So I actually had to do some research over the weekend. This is how dedicated I was. Before oh, I went wedding, to the wedding. That's what I love. Thank before, you, before, before I went to the wedding at three o'clock on Saturday, I sat and watched uh, you know, Sky Sports years, yep. 98, 99. Um, and yeah, and United started poorly. And also something I didn't remember was how well Villa started. Yeah. Um, they, I think they went, they went unbeaten in their first 12 or something. And uh, I think they set a new club record. Um, and they were fantastic at the start of that season. They were top of the league. And I think they were top at Christmas. So again, hard, hard to hard to believe. I mean, especially looking at Villa now. But, um, but they had a good side. And with, obviously, John Gregory seems to be a, a pretty popular manager. So... And, and Liverpool as well, I think, started quite well, as they tend to do. And they always tended to do that in the 90s. They seemed to always be up there and everyone thought, well, this is it. They're going to finally win the league. And they seemed to, to drop away. But it, as for United, yes, started slowly. You said they lost that game to Middlesbrough. Um, I, think that was, I think that was the game Alex Ferguson missed. He had to go to a family funeral. So um, I think Jim Ryan, the assistant manager, was in charge that day. Um, I think it was their only home defeat of that season. But... Yeah, a very slow start. Typical of United again in the 90s. Unlike these days, if you don't win in your first three yeah. games, everyone's ready, ready to write you off. But back then, 
it was quite often the case that United were, you know, 10th, 11th, 12th after five or six games and they wouldn't even get going until Christmas. And I think this is the perfect example of that. They just didn't look like they were going to do anything. Arsenal looked strong. Chelsea were... The sort of new first revolution at Chelsea was just kicking in and uh, I think they were a lot of people's favourites. So United almost came came off, came along the rails and, and surprised everyone really. But it was it was perfect timing from from Fergus, Ferguson's point of view to, to have his team ready and, and for that final push, mm. which a lot of teams don't. A lot of teams would burn themselves out and drop away. But uh, United seemed to have it perfectly timed on so many occasions in that, in that decade, just sitting on the shoulder and and ready to ready to pounce, which is exactly what they did. It was a funny old start for the season because Cheltenham were top in August, which you know newly promoted yeah. Cheltenham, which uh, friends of mine because I live I used to live in the area, still have friends that way, still remind me of that Cheltenham were top. Um, although that was Man United's first win of the season, they beat Cheltenham four one, which really put the sort of pin in it for Cheltenham, and eventually they got relegated. But and then Villa, I completely forgot that. Chris, do you remember this Villa run? Um, because they, they were top of Christmas. They had that game against Arsenal where they were 2-0 down and came, I think they won 3-2. Dion Dublin, I mean, that Villa team looked like total contenders for that first half of the season, didn't they? I, I'll tell you what, I remember John Gregory and his outspoken comments. That's 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 hilarious that he threatened to shoot uh, Dwight York. You don't get enough of that anymore, do you? Premier I don't League you get away with it now, would you? Threatening, threatening, no, you wouldn't, would you? I mean, <laughs> um, didn't he also... Call was was he there when Ginola went to Villa and he called David Ginola fat, yeah. didn't he? And yeah. um, Ginola ever been so, fat. Then I dread to think what John Gregory would call me. <laughs> so he wasn't uh, scared of yeah uh, being uh, laying down a few outlandish uh, comments in his uh, press conferences, was he? No, I, I don't particularly remember Villa getting off to to a great start in that season. But again, it is amazing to think how far that club has fallen because they were. I remember in that first Premier League season when it was them and Norwich, wasn't yeah. it pushing? Manu all the way, and, and Villa were obviously one of the the contenders to be around that kind of top four, top five, top top six for most of the seasons uh, throughout the nineties. So to think where they are now is is, is uh, stunning. Just the mismanagement of of that club, and as a Spurs fan, I've, I've seen us kind of uh, come close to that a few times. It's amazing that that, that we've sorted ourselves out as a club and managed to find a way forward because in you know you look at the end of the nineties and the beginning of the noughties, Tottenham were a very kind of similar standard to. To Villa, um, we were kind of just outside that that real top bracket of the elite, and luckily we've we've had owners who who I would say have done a, a very good job over this last seven eight years. Uh, whereas Villa, it's all gone terribly wrong up there. Mm, very much so. Uh, let's talk second half then. Like you say, Maynard had that sort of knack in the nineties, Matthew, of just sort of sitting on the shoulder. Then second half of the season, it was really go time. And they really did in that second half of the season. They only dropped points in, I think it was three games I've got written here. Um, there were some memorable wins, 8-1 at Forest as well. And then it became the Fergie Wenger show once again. Arsenal nipping at your heels. But May United's title, I mean, how do you view that run-in? What do you remember about reclaiming the first leg of what was be a historic treble? Yeah, it's funny because no one really talked about the treble until probably the last couple of weeks of the yeah. season. But um but yeah, I just remember United almost trying their darndest to, to throw it away because if you remember, it was it was to and froing between Arsenal and United. United went on a, I think they unbeaten in thirty games or something, or they obviously didn't lose again after that game uh, with, Mid- with Middlesbrough at home. So they were they were flying. But then it came to the final few weeks of the season, and and Arsenal really could have could have snatched it. I think um, Arsenal went to Leeds. Mm in uh, the penultimate week of the season and drew nil-nil, which pretty much put it back into United's hands. It was a one-nil defeat. Jimmy Floyd Hasselbank. I'll never forget that. I was watching it with an old Arsenal friend of mine and at the time, obviously, they were banging it, as you say. And yeah, that really put the spanner in it, didn't it? 
It did, and it, I mean, ultimately, that whole running, United always had this one game in hand, uh, which which proved valuable. But do you remember they went to Anfield on a midweek night, um, two 0 up, and then Liverpool came back two two. Dennis Irwin got sent off, and uh, so they dropped points there again. Arsenal beat Tottenham, I think, that night, so that put Arsenal right back in it. So it was a real. Again, I was watching it at the weekend. I was thinking, do we seem to have, do we have runnings like that now? I mean, it seemed to be at the, in the nineties, every running went right to the end yeah. and you had teams play, playing in midweek and teams would drop points and somebody would win, someone would lose. And I don't know, it just seems recently, league title seems to have been all but over by about the end of March. So it's, it was the classic 90s title running, wasn't it? And um, obviously, uh, I think United played Blackburn. They they could have sealed the win, the title there, but they drew 0-0. So it ultimately went to the last game of the season. And uh, well, Tottenham were involved in that as well, weren't yeah, they? Yeah, I was and, going to bring Chris in. I was, that, that game must have been a bit difficult for you, Chris, knowing that if you'd beaten United, Arsenal could have snuck in. But do you want to win or did you want Arsenal to win the title? How did how did they feel about the time? I, I really didn't want Arsenal to win the <laughs> win the title. But um, no, it's, it's nice to see that you know Tottenham played their part uh, in the uh, in the title running by losing three one to Arsenal and then losing three one to Manchester United. So uh, you know we we really had a big role to play there. But no, it is amazing because I did a little bit of research too, looking back at the that Sky Sports show of, of the season, just the last bit of it. And uh, it's amazing to think that yeah, the week the second the week before Arsenal were kind of in the driving seat because they beat Tottenham at White Hart Lane, and uh, as 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 Matthew mentions, uh, Man U were held to a draw, weren't they, by Liverpool? And then it, it's amazing to think how close the treble was from not happening at all, from, from Man U actually winning the season without a trophy, because Arsenal could quite easily have, have won the title. Obviously, the FA Cup, which we'll come on to in that, that semi-final, could easily have gone Arsenal's yeah, way. And then, obviously, yeah. we all know what happened in the, the Champions League final. So, it is, it's quite amazing, the, the fine line between what was the uh, the greatest club achievement in, in our country's ever seen, to actually Man U could well have ended that season without a trophy. And also, as Matthew mentioned, what, what I'd completely forgotten, Chelsea were in that, that title yeah. race until about two weeks from the end of the season, so we had, we did actually have a proper three horse race there for for most of the year until right at the end, and yeah, it it, it went to the very last game, and um, uh, luckily luckily for us, Man U beat us because we were ahead at Old Trafford. Yeah, um, I remember, yeah, I remember that. And, and then uh, there was Andy Cole lob, wasn't it? I, th- I think yeah. it was it's one of those moments where you, as a Spurs fan, you're kind of thinking, well, I'd, I'd love to win at Old Trafford and hope that Arsenal also fail to win, and then that'll be quite funny because they'll know that they've missed the chance. But uh, you go there as a Spurs fan thinking we're almost certainly going to lose here, and. To be honest, I think we've we finished tenth or eleventh in the league, so there wasn't anything for us to play for in in the league. So yeah, I was I was more than happy as a bitter and twisted Spurs fan uh, <laughs> to lose to lose to Man U and and uh, and uh, see Arsenal. And it was two one, wasn't it? Not three one, two one to Man U yeah. and, uh, and and see Man U win the title instead of Arsenal. That was more than good enough for me. Mm, David Beckham with the winner there. How does that rank, yes. Matthew? In the in the title wins, obviously there was quite a few of them as we discussed in the uh, in the nineties. Where does ninety nine rank for you? Well, it's funny because it's almost it, it almost doesn't seem as exciting as others because of everything else that went around mm. it. It was almost like titles won now, right? Now there's the possibility of going and winning a cup and a, a European Cup. If that had been the only thing United had been going for that season, then it would have been one of the most epic title races there had been, like uh, 94, 95, 92. You know, all of them, they were pretty much all epic. But this one almost seems to be just, you can't really talk about one without the other. And it's it's amazing to say that about such a close running because like we just said there it was a classic title running three teams in it the two teams that were fighting out till the very last week of the season it would be one of the most talked about title runnings in the 90s or in the, in, in the Premier League era but it, it almost seems to be dwarfed by the fact that you always then have to go on and talk about what happened afterwards but 
but like you said there, we, it, it could so easily have been so so different. The way I think that's what made it such an epic season for United. The fact that it all it was all so dramatic. Even nothing was routine. I suppose the only thing that was routine in the whole season, and we'll probably talk about it, was the FA Cup final against Newcastle. It was, a, it was the only game really in that season that didn't have something that United didn't go one behind or have a man sent off. Or there wasn't anything dramatic about that game. But everything else, including this title running, was just unbelievable. So really, you'd have to say this is one of the most impressive title wins of, of United's Hall in, in recent years, but it almost seems to have gone under the radar because of uh, the weeks that followed. Mm. The weeks, you meant, that's, we, we won't dwell on, like you said, the final was a pretty standard final, the FA Cup final against Newcastle, their second uh, final loss in consecutive seasons. Um, but what was epic, and probably one of the games of the decade, as we touched on earlier, was the semi-final. It already locked Liverpool out of the FA Cup earlier in the competition. Two late goals, I remember that game. Yeah, but, but that was another epic, wasn't it? A classic. Yeah, it was really late goal. goals, yeah, if I remember what, rightly. 1-0 down with two minutes to go and ended up winning 2-1. I mean, that just sub- summed up the whole of that season, didn't it? It was a, United, a proper United team. You never you never count them out. But that semi-final, yeah. the, the second, the, uh, the replay, sorry, at Villa Park, I mean, the site is one of those games that, as a neutral, I mean, you know, I wasn't the biggest main eyed fan as, as as growing up as a kid watching this, but as a neutral, so so much happened. End to end stuff, great goals. Obviously, the Ryan Giggs goal we talk about, sending off missed penalty. It was just one of those games. Before we get your view, I mean, Chris, what do you remember? Obviously, you had one foot in the main eye camp being a Tottenham fan, yeah. but one of the games. Of I, 90s. I, I, I was wanting, I was wanting Manu to win that night, and uh, yeah, that was the last ever semi final replay as well, wasn't it? Uh, yeah. Scrapped yeah. in the next year, and that. That was well, you know, probably one of the greatest semi-finals of, of all time. I mean, I just I think everyone expected Burkamp to score. It, it was injury time that penalty, yeah. wasn't it? And um, so that would have put Arsenal through two uh, one, and it, Schmeichel saved it. Went into uh, Manu had already had Keane sent off, so they're down to ten men, and then obviously Giggsy's goal in extra time was absolutely stunning. Uh, got goal of the season, understandably. Actually, I, when I was doing a little bit of research for it, it also got voted the best goal. In the last fifty years, in a, wow. in a BBC vote back in in twenty fifteen, I don't think many people could could disagree with it. I think it's Trevor just, Sinclair uh, might do, but come on, we'll well, on. <laughs> yeah, and, and Ginola as well got, yeah. got a few good ones and, and Klinsman. But um, I think because of what was riding on it, and, and, and the kind of the ebbs and flows of that game, kind of adds as to the greatness of the goal as well, um, if you know what I mean. Um, so I think the, the fact that there was there was so much on the game, and to also see it won in that fashion when. When it looked just a few moments before, really, that Manu were going to be out of the cup and the the treble dream was was going to be over. I mean, I, I just, as, as I was saying earlier, it, it must be galling. I'm, I'm I'm quite happy to revel in how galling it must be for Arsenal fans <laughs> to think how close they were to winning that game, and you'd you'd have expected them to have beaten Newcastle in the final, and also to think, okay, they'd won they'd won the double the year before, so um, they'd had more than their fair share of success, but they really could have won the title as well. So. Uh, just these classic games like that don't come around often, and yeah, I'll, I'll never forget that as a, as a non-Spurs FA Cup side. That's that's the greatest I've ever seen. Mm. Yeah, it also it also had a classic pitch invasion and, and player carried off on fans' shoulders, which you don't see enough. You of don't see that, do you? No, no. <laughs> certainly not in the Premier. Certainly not among the the Premier League teams. I kind of you, I kind of miss that. You, you get it in the playoffs, don't you? Lower down yeah. when when there's a joyous pitch invasion. Obviously, no one wants to see any trouble, but joyous yeah. pitch invasions they can't really happen in the. Uh, in the Premier League, because of the the amount of stewarding and police yeah. there is there, it, it prevents it from happening. But yeah, you look back at those images and you see what it meant to the club. And, and actually, I was I was thinking, is that the last season really at the FA Cup really was special? Because 
Obviously, it was the next year when Man U mm. didn't go to uh, didn't compete in it because they went to Brazil yeah. for the FIFA World Club Championship, which is kind of seen as the moment that the FA Cup lost its magic. So maybe ninety eight, ninety nine was the last last great season that there was for the FA Cup. Man United taking it seriously, it, it, part yeah. of the treble. Only won it twice since, haven't they? Two thousand and four and twenty sixteen. I don't think Man U or many of the other big clubs have taken the FA Cup quite so seriously over the last ten or fifteen years. So. 98-99, a classic season for the FA Cup. Mm. Yeah, that's a good that's a good point, actually. I, I hadn't thought of that. It's, it's very true, because the, the, the season after was the classic Sinker-Villa-Chelsea, wasn't it? The 2000 yeah. oh, yeah, that, that was a terrible that, that was a terrible final, yes. Which yeah. is why we won't cover it, because it's not 90s. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, one, one competition clubs do still care about, and it's a competition at the time that you know English teams hadn't, hadn't won since the 80s. Um, the Champions League. Um, quickly touch on the semi-final because everyone knows the story with Roy Keane. I mean, Matthew, how much did you fall in love more with Roy Keane that night in Turin? Yeah, oh, he was he was he was brilliant, wasn't he? I, I, I remember watching this actually again. I was working in uh, FHM in, in London. I remember going to a pub to to watch this, and and again the classic United. I mean, they'd, they'd drawn the first leg one one, mm. which now you, you think is a terrible result really for a home home semi-final, and then found themselves two 0 down away in the second leg but watching it you still thought they were probably going to win the match or they could you know you never thought oh that's it they're out now and this was the classic example wasn't it and and brought about purely by Keane's uh, Keane, like a, almost a one it would be unfair to say one man performance but just his influence on the uh, on the team that night and uh, obviously knew he wasn't going to play in the final if if, he, if United made it, which they did. And I, there was a classic interview after the game when he just said, oh, yeah, I'm not going to make the final, but I don't care about that. United are there, so that, that's all that matters. And I think that's, yeah, that's that's, that's the true class of the, the guy. You know, for, for people that like him, I think you'll say that's that just summed him up that night. I mean, what a, what a comeback and what a performance from him. Definitely. And, I mean, let's talk about the final then. And where were you? What do you remember? I mean, it must be... I can't imagine as a QPR fan ever getting close to a Champions League final. So, how? What do you remember about 1999, Matthew? Yeah, well, I was working in Oxford Street, um, the uh, the FHM office back then, and I remember a lad there had gone to the final, so he was all excited. He just he flew out that day. Um, I I wasn't going unfortunately, um, so just got the <clears throat> got the train straight back. I was living down down in Reading at the time, and. Uh, Got back there and sat and watched the game, and I think I was just open mouth through the the whole the whole game. And I was watching it back the other day when I was doing my research, and I was thinking I, I don't really remember how crazy I went. I think I was more just in shock because it it was such an incredible thing to happen that I think instead of jumping around the the, the house like a madman, I think I was just sat slumped yeah. in my chair thinking, "What the hell have I just seen?" And it's only now when you watch it back that you realise what. In how incredible it was but then I, I I think it was a delayed reaction I think I had a, actually genuinely had a, a delayed reaction um, purely from shock but I still think it's I, I might be a bit controversial here but people say that Istanbul was the greatest comeback I don't know I think you I, I don't see how you can beat that night really I mean one nil down with two minutes to go and to win the game 2-1 with pretty much the last kick of the game I just, I just don't see how you can top that, really. I think people think because it happened. I mean, I don't. People don't mention the rest of the game ever, do they? It's always about the first goal, which was quite early, and then yeah. the two goals in the last. I think because the Liverpool comeback happened over the space of ninety minutes, I think that gets talked about more. But I agree, in dramatic terms, it was. It's definitely up there, isn't it? Yeah, well, my issue with Istanbul, and I shouldn't, yeah, you know, I'm keeping it 90s, I should, shouldn't really talk about it, and I don't want to upset my Liverpool fans, friends either, but I just think it, 
you know, it was three, three at half time, and then it was three, three with about half an hour to go, yeah. wasn't it? or twenty minutes to go. Like and that, then yeah. you, and then you had all of extra time, and then you had penalties. So yeah, a great comeback. But in, like you say, in terms of dramatic comebacks, I don't think you can beat what happened that night in Barcelona purely because, I mean, Bayern should have been three, three nil up anyway. They hit the post, hit the bar. Schmeichel made some great saves, and then to throw on two substitutes with five minutes to go and score two goals in the space of you know, 90 seconds or whatever it was. I mean, what? Just um, just unbelievable. It was. I mean, I, I remember watching it doing my geography coursework. I was sitting around my, one of my friend's kitchen tables doing my geography coursework. That's all I always remember. And, and not doing it, basically. Putting it to one side, open mouth like you. Can't believe what happened. Chris, for you, where were you? What do you remember about one of the the games of the 90s? Yeah, I was at university and everyone in, in, in the common room, student common room, the vast majority were cheering on Man United. I, I have to admit, I had my bitter and twisted, uh, not wanting anyone else to be successful head on at the time. And I was probably in a minority. There was probably two or three of us wanting uh, Bayern to win. And uh, yeah, we were we were left uh, uh, pretty uh, distraught at the end with everyone else uh, jumping around and celebrating. But no, I mean, yeah, what an amazing... I, I couldn't really choose between the the Liverpool one and, and the Man U one for two incredible ways for an English team to to win the Champions League. I just didn't see that Man U uh, turning that game around. I think that's what made it, like like Matthew's saying, I guess with the Liverpool one in 2005, you had a bit more time to think, well, the momentum's with them now. They're probably the team that's going to go on to win this. But with, with Man U to actually be in injury time um, before they equalised, and obviously as a Spurs fan, I still had a bit of, um, bit of a bitter taste about sharing them leaving and, and going up there and for the the year before I think we'd all been singing as Spurs fans old oh, Teddy Teddy went to Man United and didn't win very much or worse to that effect uh, and then the next season obviously he bagged the treble and scored in the FA Cup final and the, and the Champions League final so I was probably feeling a bit bitterer and twisted about that as, as well but um, looking back at it now yeah obviously one of the one of the uh, in my lifetime just one of the most incredible football stories that there is to, for for it to be that that showpiece occasion, the Champions League final itself, and for a team to to turn it around in, and even you know even when Sheringham got the equaliser, we were all everyone set for extra time and thinking, oh well, you know, man, you are going to have the psychological advantage now in extra time, and uh, yeah, two minutes later, Solskjaer gets the winner, and is it was it Sami Q4 that that classic shot of him, yeah. just, you know, he was he was just on, you know, he couldn't couldn't even comprehend what had happened, could he? The, the Bayern man, he was on the floor pounding the the turf with his fists in, in tears. And I think Kalina mentions in Pierre Luigi Kalina, the referee in his autobiography talks about that as one of, if not maybe the greatest game he ever refereed because of how it all changed at, at the end and the atmosphere there. Uh, and I think he had to kind of help some of the Bayern players off the pitch because yeah, they just couldn't, they couldn't take in what had happened. Um, so yeah, so, certainly something that I will, will never forget, but yeah, I have to admit at the time I was uh, cheering on Bayern Munich. <laughs> uh, it's interesting you say that about extra time because apparently when the equaliser went in I think it was Steve McLaren or one of the assistants on the bench turned to Ferguson and said right how are we going to shape up for extra time and Ferguson turned around to him and said you don't need to worry about that it's not going to extra time <laughs> wow. now I've heard that a few times I mean I assume it's, I, I'm assume it's, it's true but it just that was the United at that time wasn't yeah. it Ferguson always used to say to his players just give yourself one make sure you have one last chance in this game and yeah. you'll probably win it and and if he did say that which I'm sure he did because I've heard it several times I mean, that just that just sums up um the, the, the nature of that team, doesn't it? And one other thing that night as well I loved was Clive, uh, Clive Tilsey's commentary. I think some of the commentary that night was just brilliant. You know, when they had the, the corner before the first goal and he says, will United score? 
they always score mm. and then straight from that <laughs> corner they did and it's just, I just thought it was it was great and I've got no issue with anyone uh, supporting the other team in Europe by the way <laughs> you know when you say about supporting I, uh, I, I, I never like this whole, this thing of boy you've got to want the English team to win I think you know, I don't agree with that, so I've got no issue with. No, I know you. there. I know there were quite a lot of people that night supporting Bayern Munich. So, I've, you know, but I, I remember last year when Liverpool played Seville in the uh, Europa League final. I was here in town, and I certainly didn't want them to win. <laughs> and, and when they, and when I, when they didn't, me and a few Evertonians went out and, and celebrated. So uh, I think you, I think I think if you give you give it and take it. So it's, exactly that's, that's football isn't it, after all. Yeah. The last, the last word on this, I'm going to give to David May because if there's anyone who's milked a celebration more than, than David May, isn't it? I mean, those, I always remember those photos afterwards. He's everywhere, isn't he? Yeah. John, John, Terry, John Terry managed to outdo him, though, didn't he? He did, years yeah. Later, in All 2012, kid, yeah. He managed to out, outdo David May by when he, when he was banned from the final but came on with even his shin pads on to, to get himself in the photo. Uh, until that moment, yeah, it was David May kind of led, led the way there, didn't he? In, he did, in dominating a, a celebration more than you thought that he really should. <laughs> David May. Well, I think we've managed to wrap up the, the treble quite nicely there. Um, we could have talked very much more of it, but I think we've covered everything. But as we've said at the top of the show, there was another team that was successful that season with a trophy. We'll talk about Tottenham with Chris in a minute. Before we do, somebody who played in that final spoke to me earlier this week. He's former Portsmouth and Tottenham winger Darren Anden talking to me here on Alive and Kicking. Joining me on the line now, absolute pleasure. One of the one of the big faces of the decade we celebrate here on Alive and Kicking. Darren Anderton, thank you for joining us. Welcome to the show. How are you doing? You okay? I'm very well, thank you. Hope you are too. Um, let's, let's go into the 90s then. I mean, it's a decade that you're very synonymous with. Um, started with Portsmouth. I remember you coming through in that FA Cup run. What are your early memories of the decade and that 92 run to, to the semi-finals? Um, oh, God. Um, first out, I love my time at Portsmouth. I was very fortunate to have a, such good upbringing in the game when I started there. being coached by you know, Alan Ball. Peter Osgood, Graham Pad and people like that. And I remember um, the season before Jim Smith came. I got in the team. I played a few games here and there. Not really set the world alight. Then Jim Smith came in. And I remember the first day of pre-season, he just went, you're all on a level playing field. You, you know, to all the pros, whoever does the business gets in my team. And, and he was true to his word. And I think the first game of that season, we played against Blackburn away. And they'd spent big money. Um, you know, Kenny Dalglish had gone there, obviously, in order to get them into the, you know, the top division. And we went there, and um, there was about five five lads who were still making their way in the game. You know, mm. four from my youth team: Andy Orford, Kit Simons, Daryl Powell. It was um, and myself, so it was it was brilliant. And we drew the game one all. I think I scored scored my first goal in league football. We'd um, from across, <laughs> Bobby Mims led it in, and that and that was that was the start of the season, and the whole year was just just brilliant. We had great pros there: John Beresford, Martin Cole, Colin Clark, Mark Chamberlain, Steve Wigley, Alan Knight, and uh, Warren Neal, who played behind me at right back, who was still to this day I still say is one of the most underrated footballers I ever played with. And then we went on that amazing cup run, which. Uh, we should have beat Liverpool. We we played so well that day at Highbury. Went one nil up, and they um, scored a last minute equaliser. Um, absolutely gutted. Still got the Russia shirt from the day, which I still look back on with, with pride. Mm. 
that that run, and obviously the, the, the semi-final replay, you lost some penalties, but that run got you, opened the door for you, and you moved to Tottenham. Was Tottenham the only option for you, or what, how did you, how did the move to Tottenham happen? Um, it was a strange one, really, because I started playing really well, and things were, things were going well for both myself and the team, and people were starting to talk about me, and then there was a, there was a, you know, someone, you know, people were phoning me and saying, oh, Darren, you know, blah, 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 you know, you want to go to Liverpool, you want to go to Spurs, you want to go here, go go, go here, there, and anywhere. Well, and I remember um, Steve Wicks had brought a guy down to Portsmouth when I was in the reserves, so was just for us young boys. I think he saw that we were all going to do hopefully okay in in our careers, and just, just as like an accountant type thing, and start a pension, um, and when this talk then started a couple of years later, um, he, you know, I spoke to my accountant who just basically said, oh, you know, things are going great, well done, blah, 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 lovely to see you doing so. I said, yeah, no, it's going great. I said, but my head's all over the shop. Oh, you know, I keep getting, you know, get people phoning and saying, oh, you've got to go here, you've got to do this, you've got to do that. And he said, well, I, um, you know, I act for Terry Venables. So I said, oh, well, would you ask him if he if he's interested? <laughs> so, so he asked, yeah, of course. So he spoke to Terry and came back and said, yep, you're number one on his list this summer. And I was like, oh, wow, unbelievable. Um, I said, okay, well, that's great. What do I do? And he said, well, he said, I've got, I act for a couple of players, Gordon Jory, Gary, Gary Pallister, Tony DeRigo. I said, oh, great. Okay, I'm, I'm with you then. <laughs> and that was it. Um, and then at the end of that season, being away in Tenerife on the end of season tour, and I came back and then I got the phone call from Jim Smith and he said, um, the club have accepted a bid for you. To which I said, okay, Really? What do I do? He said, "Well, you go and speak to him." He said, "It's a great opportunity for you." He said, "Terry Venables will make you the player that I believe you know you will be one day, um, the top top player." And I was like, "Okay." And I went up there. Didn't want to leave really, but once I met Terry Venables, I was that was it. Job done. Just loved everything about him and signed on the dotted line. How was the step up, I mean, in those days to to the top division? I know you put some foot already in the league below, but did you find it quite a, a, a difficult step up to to that league? Yeah, I did. I think I found it quite daunting, really. I mean, I was only twenty. It was the fee was two million pound. It was big fee. Which I think Al Al Shearer had gone for three point three that summer or something around that, which was the British record. And I was going for two million as you know, just just twenty years of age. Um, one year, one full year in professional football really um, but what I didn't know at the end of that season at Portsmouth I started struggling with my groins I didn't know what it was went to Tottenham I, I definitely wasn't right um, and after three or f- three months went and saw a, a specialist no basically I had a hernia which I didn't really know that I'd been playing with the whole time so A I struggled but whether that was the, the step up or the injury who knows um, but uh, once I had it done and came back around Christmas. I was absolutely flying, and uh, yeah, uh, d- didn't look back really. I think uh, the second half of that season, I think Teddy scored about twenty goals, and I made about fifteen of them. So it was. Um, I, I then felt like I belonged, but but it but it was a real struggle to start with. The fans were brilliant to me. Um, the media not so good. <laughs> Tottenham in the 90s were very much a roller coaster team, weren't they? In terms, of, especially the managers. I mean, you mentioned yeah. Venables, also you played for him in England as well. And there's Christian Groves and Jerry Francis. How, what sort of era did you enjoy playing under the most? Cool. Um, it was up and down. There's no doubt about it. Um, I, I loved the 
playing for Terry Venables that first year, although it was a struggle, but then when things started to go well, I just absolutely loved it. Um, and the, di- my, you know, my, the disappointment when he left was, was so big for me. Um, but then Ozzy Ardiles came in and the football was great, great fun. He, you know, I was a right midfielder, but he gave me the freedom to go and get involved and get on the ball, told, told, told the team get the ball, give it a down, let him make things happen. It was, yeah, so enjoyable. But then, and then the following year, when uh, Jurgen came in and Uli Dumitrescu and Jika Popescu, and I'd had two years there. I was in the England team and. Teddy was in the team, Nicky Barnby. That, for me, was was the best. It was 94-95 season. The famous five and all that, although it it never worked out in the end. It was such good fun. So so enjoyable to go and train in every day and play with those players and with Ozzy, who just let you just go out and play. And it, yeah, It's a shame that defensively we didn't work on more in order to to be a better team but it was uh, it was it was certainly enjoyable to to watch and, and enjoyable to play in. Jerry Francis then came in and, and training was yet yeah, very regimented, work hard, shape and we turned into a very, very good team and um we ended up I don't know how I think when Jerry came in that year I, I, I think we ended up having six clean sheets in a row and things like that. But that, that team with all of those players were always going to score goals so it was um, it, it, it was brilliant. Very sad that you know the team got broke up with you know Jurgen going back to Germany, Nicky Barnby being homesick and going up to Middlesbrough, and um, then I started picking up injuries and the team from that level in '94, '95 should have been should have been a team that went on and challenged for the league, but it, instead it went the other way. You mentioned Klinsmann there. I mean, I remember at the time being such a massive. Story that him joining Tottenham. What were your opinions when you first heard that this mega star from the '94 World Cup was was joining you, lad? Well, I couldn't believe it. I thought it was a wind-up. I thought, you know, it was. When I see it, well, you know, he just played in the World Cup. He, I remember watching him out there. Out there, I was in America on holiday, and he top goal scorer. You know, Germany, surprisingly, I think they got beat by Bulgaria, but I think they probably should have gone on and won the tournament. I thought, but. Um, he was unbelievable. So, you know, as a kid, I watched in, in you know World Cup '90 and things like that. So, I think he was coming to play with us. I just thought it was a joke. And I remember my mum phone. I think it was my mum phoning me saying, saying about it. He said, "No, no, it's on the back of the paper. Back here, back home. He's on. He, he's on own sugar's boat." <laughs> and when he came in, it was you know I think a lot of the boys were probably a little bit in awe. And but the, when he bowled in and his beetle and was just uh, such a great lad and such a nice fella that that went within one training session you're just a top top man mm-hmm. absolutely you went on as at Tottenham and the season we're talking about this week's show is the last season the 98-99 in the league yeah. cup under George Graham what, what were the lads opinion of George Graham coming in first of all because he's such an Arsenal man and then what are your memories of that league cup final the thoughts of him coming in were, were great we just had Chris, Christian Close was there um and it was such a struggle that, for me, I knew that we had great players at the, at, at the club. And I, my mentality has always been: if you can get great players to work, work their socks off, you won't be far away. And that's exactly what it was under George. He came in. He yeah. He came in with a, everyone thinking, oh god, you know, disciplinary. And I remember speaking to Merce about him, and he got, no, you'll love him. You'll love him. He's 
and and I did. I thought he was he was brilliant. We we worked really hard in training, but he was such a good guy as well. I think people don't realise you know what a great mm. guy George is to just see him as you know ruling with an iron fist. But no, he was he was much more than that. He was he, he was brilliant, and I don't think people people kind of forget just how entertaining that team was. I mean, that year we 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 done great. We got the FA Cup semi final. We but we won we won the um the, the Worthington Cup. We, we had a great run in the league. We beat United at home. We won the treble. We beat Arsenal at home. We beat well, you know we were we were we were flying. It was uh, you know, beat Newcastle. It was I really enjoyed it. my time playing under George and um and obviously the new owners came in and and when that happens they they normally want their man and yeah Glenn Hoddle was their man but playing under George was was brilliant. And where does the final, the, the League Cup final, the Worth Cup final that year rank in your career? Cause it's a, it's it ranked a trophy very and... highly, but as a game, it was one of the worst. It was, <laughs> yeah, it, it wasn't it, a great game. It, it, but that's, you know, George was a winner. Yeah. Um, and I think back all the you know, good teams I played in at Spurs, <clears throat> it was, that was the only team that won anything. That was probably down to George. That's what he did. He what he won games. He won he won football matches. He won trophies. He was um, he he was great. But it, as a game, God, it was dreadful. And I remember we got, you know the memories of it. Probably uh, Justin getting sent off with sad play acting, um, and then them playing for a draw and penalties, even though we had ten men, was very strange. Um, you know, so they Leicester weren't a bad team. They, mm. You know, it wasn't like they changed their tactics in any way to go and win the game. They just stayed as they were and were happy to try and play out for penalties. And then Stefan Everson, great run, um, running cross shot. And Alan Nielsen scored the winner in the last minute. If you're going to win a cup final, you know, you don't care how, but to do it in the last, with a last minute winner made it even more special. We can't talk to you without talking about England as well. You have some great moments in that decade, especially in the two tournaments yeah. in 96 and 98. What are your standout memories from, from those those two tournaments? Uh, well, I mean, on an individual note, of course, the dream when you're in the garden smashing a ball against the, the garage, garage wall, garage door, is scoring a goal in the World Cup. So to do that was well, just ridiculous feeling. Um, the best moment I've ever had on a football pitch. So I will never forget that. Um, still, whenever I see the goal on old TV or YouTube or anything, it still gives me a, me a tingle. Um, but in terms of a, you know, a tournament, Euro '96 in in our own country was just madness. And whoever I speak to these days, you know, out strangers, they all remember Euro '96 and the feeling around the country, mm. around that team. Um, it was very special, wasn't it? Yeah, it was special, and to be part of that, um, to be on the pitch while all that was going on, you know. To think how special it was for fans to be able to say that I was on the pitch, taking it all in and enjoying it, um, was amazing. And we should have won it. We, I think we were the best team. Just uh, unfortunately, that is the joys of football. That I think the best team don't always win. Do you always look back on that moment that hitting the post in, in the yeah, semi-final? Yeah, people that... bring it up. I mean, for, for me, it was it's, it's a thing that the ball, the ball came in, it was crossed in behind me. Couldn't. I think if it if I had if I had a one on one or something like that, I think oh well you know I should have or a penalty or I should have put it the other way. Whereas that it was just I got a touch on it. I was falling the other way. I couldn't have done anything different. Mm. So 
it was just wasn't meant to be. But I always think when when I got a connection on it, I actually didn't see where the ball went because I was falling the other way. Then I presumed it had gone in. And that feeling of rolling over and seeing the ball not only hit the post but roll into the into the goalie's hands had already dived past the ball. It was ridiculous. Yeah, <laughs> I remember, we remember it. It's a horrible moment for everyone. But yeah, you yeah, no, no, I had both happy and bad memories of, of, of that night. I think people always talk about the Holland game, but I think the Germany game we actually probably played equally as well without just not scoring the goals. Mm. As, as teams, but those two England squads, which one do you think was better? Obviously, the Euro 96 had that euphoria, but as teams, do you think Tough the 98 call. was possibly stronger? Tough call. I think um, I loved the Euro 96 team because it was just full of leaders, full of captains. You know, if you look at the team, I think it's probably just me and Stephen Bannerman who weren't captains at the time of their club teams. It was, you know, Terry Venner was, of course, the best manager I ever played for, but. Once we were out on the pitch, it didn't matter who the manager was. There were so many leaders out there. If you weren't doing your job, you'd know about it. <laughs> it was, um, but then going on to World Cup 98, the mix, I suppose, when you think you had Scolzi coming through, Sol, Bex, Michael Owen, to go with those leaders and those players, was a that was a team that... I really do think could have gone on and won, won, the, won the tournament could have been world, world champions people always talk about Euro 96 but the um, the team in, in 98 was very special mm-hmm. no I agree finally before I let you go there's something that we, uh, I wanted to ask you I was dusting off my old 90s memorabilia the other day and I found quite a massive action figure of you um, <laughs> from the Hasbro range and I just how weird is that for part of being a you know, famous stroker footballer having those sort of things in the 90s there were a lot of those sort yeah, of bit, nasty bit things that we love a bit weird I'm actually looking at a little one of them at the moment <laughs> the little Corinthian ones yeah. yeah 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 the girls have got one um, they, they love they, they, they think it's absolutely hilarious <laughs> it was all very strange but I it was, it was good. They weren't bad, to be fair. That's good likeness. Yeah, not bad at all. <laughs> Brilliant. Well, what are you up to today these days, Darren? I know you see you pop up on our TVs as a pundit every now and then. But yeah, do a little about? bit of that. Do, 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 uh, do, do some abroad. Um, do, uh, I've always enjoyed doing stuff with property. And I've got a children's nursery in Bournemouth uh, that I turned one of my houses into, which is quite very different, but very, very, very good. Mm. Works very well for me, so... Brilliant. I've got a 17-month-old myself, so I can imagine that's bloody challenging. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I, I'm putting it this way. I, don't, I try not to go in there when in working hours. <laughs> <laughs> Good stuff. Well, thank you very much for talking to us, Darren. Cheers. Thanks a lot. Nice one. Thanks a lot. Bye. Bye-bye. Great to hear from Darren Anderton there, a man who played in that final. So let's talk Tottenham then, Chris. I mean, it was a eventful season at the lane, wasn't it? Um, the season that Christian Gross went... And yep. unbelievably, which is still quite unbelievable in these days, George Graham became the new mm. manager of Tottenham. Before we talk about the, the final and, and that success, what were your feelings on George Graham, Tottenham? Yeah, um, another another managerial sacking which came along all too regularly uh, in the 90s and, and the noughties. And uh, yeah, obviously we were all had Spurs fans relieved to see uh, Christian Gross go. I think he only lasted two or three games at the start of that season. We lost to, to Wimbledon heavily and then Sheffield Wednesday heavily. Uh, he was showing the door and it was quite clear that George Graham was Alan Sugar's number one choice. And I was very much in the camp of, of, of not wanting that to happen. 
in a you know I think when you're younger football's a much more emotional thing and you're far less rational uh, about the the decisions and you you look back now and you can see why Alan Sugar would have made that as a rational decision but at the time the idea of of a man, the man who had it led your, your greatest rivals, but also played some of the most dour football I'd ever seen in my lifetime. Yes, of course, he got he got those uh, amazing results at, at Arsenal, but that goes counter to everything that, that Tottenham has ever meant to me and to, and, and to so many fans that Tottenham has, for us, been much more than trying to win a trophy. It's about playing the right way. And, and, and then he comes and does exactly what you would expect him to do. He comes and does win a trophy. And that, that is this, the great debate, the greatest debate, perhaps, that that all football fans face that he came in and within within a few months we had won our first trophy for eight years um, but it wasn't looking back as I said earlier it wasn't a classic season yes we had uh, David Ginola playing phenomenally well scoring he only scored seven goals that season but he scored so many sensa- so many of those seven goals were sensational goals uh, what he gave to the team uh, was so much as well he, he, he created so many chances and he won double footballer of the year mm. in, in, a, in a season when Manchester United had candidate after candidate. Yeah, they, Fergie they went after that, was he? Yeah, many people would say, you know, it, it split the vote because there were so many Man U uh, players to vote for, and I can understand that argument. But the fact that David Ginola won it among his peers, you know, he won the Football Writers Award as well, but he got the PFA uh, Award as well. And to win that among your peers uh, takes some doing. They clearly had ultimate respect for what he was doing on on the pitch. But the season itself, yeah, it wasn't wasn't at all a great season, but. Having that day out at Wembley, and it, and it was a terrible match as well against Leicester, um, a terrible match. Um, but to have those days out where where you do get to see your your, your club win something is is a, a really special moment. A lot a lot of football fans never have that in, in their life. So I, I have to give I have to give George Graham grudging respect on on that front that he did lead Tottenham to a trophy. But no, I was very much not wanting him to become manager. I remember. I think we played Leeds. He was the Leeds manager. Yeah. They'd given his way, given him his way back into football, hadn't he? Because he'd been banned for a year for for taking that um, bung or unsolicited gift, as I think it was technically termed. Uh, the brown envelope. For, yeah. Yes. Um, and he'd been out for a year. Leeds has let him back in, and uh, then uh, Alan Sugar, who bizarrely had kind of created that whole um, that whole. Um, investigation into who had been accepting dodgy payments when he revealed what had been happening at Tottenham before he took over. Um, he then went and appointed someone who had been guilty of those uh, very crimes, if we can use that word in a football sense. So um, he was as hypocritical as we all are in football. Uh, brought uh, George Graham in, but that week before when we played Leeds, there were all sorts of protests among Tottenham fans. I remember the banners in in, in, the, in the stands urging Sugar not to appoint uh, George Graham. And I was very much hoping he would have a late uh, change of heart too. But then, yeah, the, the following week, he was there. Uh, another new manager for Tottenham. Ultimately, you'd have to say successful in a way because he did, he did win us that trophy. But, yeah, it wasn't by no means a, a classic season for Spurs, but it was a trophy season. And as I said, you do not get many of them. Mm. And the final, yeah, you mentioned the final wasn't a great one, was it? There's a lot of finals. We did this on our FA Cup final show that weren't great in the 90s mm. and, and one-sided him. Mean, this one wasn't particularly one-sided, but it wasn't a great game. Justin Edinburgh was sent off on the yeah. hour mark, if I remember. And then Alan Nilsson, which is one of those random 90s names, uh, yeah. popped up with a diving header for the winner. I mean, a trophy is trophy, Chris, but we, I mean, what did you think of the game? How, what, what were your yeah, thoughts Yeah, awful game, awful game. I, I managed to get my ticket to Wembley and uh, uh, Martin O'Neill was the Leicester manager at the time, obviously a great manager, certainly at that sort of level. The club's outside of the, the, the very top. He always knew how to get his teams to 
to make it very difficult for for the favourites as, as Tottenham were on the day. And I think you have Rob Alaphorn basically took Janola out out of the game, and I think Robbie Savage did a did a number on Janola as well. And uh, he just he didn't really have a kick in that final, which was a, was a real shame. And we were all uh, all bracing ourselves for extra time when yeah, Iverson had the shot. Uh, I think it was Casey Keller in goal, just palmed it straight out to Alan Nielsen. He, he couldn't miss from about six yards out, and just. Just the feeling of relief to have. I really did think when when Edinburgh got sent off with half an hour to go, I was convinced Leicester were going to go on to to win that game. And Savage Savage has since admitted he he made a meal of that because I think uh, he had a tussle with Edinburgh. Edinburgh swung his left hand towards Savage's face, didn't make contact. Savage went down holding his face. Edinburgh got sent off, and, and Savage admitted a few years later that you know he, he basically got got Edinburgh sent off, and he, he's not the only player to have been guilty of that. Mm. He's at least he's honest. A lot of players have, have got opponents sent off over over the years. I guess that's part of the game in at the professional level. Certainly in a final as professional as that, when you've got managers like George Graham and, and Martin O'Neill who would have had everything prepared to the T, not, not not wanting their team to give anything away. And yeah, it was an absolutely awful final. Um, that goes goes back to my point that many many seasons without a trophy will mean more to me than that 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 season actually meant but I am still very very grateful to have had that that's the only Tottenham final that I actually got to go and see at the old Wembley Mm. Um, so to have had that those memories is still means an awful lot to me all these years on Mm. Matthew what do you remember about that final you let Tottenham win that trophy didn't you You didn't fancy that one yourself the Worthington (laughs) Cup well yeah it was uh, could have been the quadruple couldn't it Uh, to to be honest it was that bad I I barely remember anything about it I really I mean I, I I remember Leicester being quite a decent team at the time under under Martin O'Neill. They were quite a look back now, and you think well, obviously they've won the league since, but they were quite a tidy side because I think that, didn't they go on and get to the final again? They won it in nineteen. They beat Tranmere, yeah, yeah. and they won next it. year or the year yeah. after. And they, yeah. they beat Borough as well, didn't they? A couple of seasons before that as well. Yes, yeah. So, so yeah, I think it was a. I think basically, I haven't really got much to add to it. Really, it was basically everything we've just discussed. But mm. from from my point of view, as a neutral, you know, you always when a cup final comes around, you think, oh, this could be a great game. This, and you always hope. Like we say, very rarely does it does it provide that that sort of match. I mean, cup finals are usually so tight that you, unless something drastic happens, you do tend to just get a a routine one nil or extra time penalties. And I think this was one of those. This was one of those games. So. Um, yeah, yeah the, the, from the Spurs' perspective, the, the run to the final was a lot more exciting because we actually we actually beat Man U in the quarter finals. Yeah, yeah. G- scored in that one, and I think Armstrong got a couple. And we beat Liverpool away in the round before that. I went up to Anfield. I think I think Owen had to go off injured early on, and obviously there was so much excitement about Michael Owen given what he'd done in in the World Cup just a few months previously. He had to go off, so that was. Uh, that, that, that counted against Liverpool, but we won three-one at Anfield, and uh, Tottenham wins at Anfield do not come along very often either. Uh, and even the semi, the semi-finals were awful. Two-legged semi-final against Wimbledon, uh, nil-nil at White Hart Lane, and we actually, I think, we played Wimbledon about four times in a row because we had them in the league and the FA Cup, which also finished nil-nil and went to a replay, and two legs of the Worthington Cup semi-finals. We played them about five times in six weeks, and they were all pretty dour games, but. Iverson got the winner at Sellers Park. Um, decent goal. He, he, he lobbed it over. I can't remember who was in goal. It might have still been Hans Sagers. I'm not sure. Uh, really, Neil, really Sullivan. Neil Sullivan. Neil Sullivan. Yes, you're quite right. Yeah. Neil Sullivan, uh, who Tottenham went on to sign. And um, great goal to win it. And there was a pitch invasion that night, actually. And I didn't go onto the pitch. And I, I always looked, my, my brother was with me. He was like, come on, let's go on. 
a joyous pitch invasion. Everyone picked up the players. They carried him for some <laughs> round. Sellers Park. And I was like, no, well, you know, we might get arrested. We might get banned. And I, I look back and I'm, I'm gutted because that's the only time it's really happened with Tottenham. Other than last season, obviously the final game at White Hart Lane when everyone in the yeah. was kind of kind of allowed onto the pitch. They just realised that. 20,000 fans wanted to get on there. They had to let people go on. But as regards a kind of match winning pitch invasion, that's the only one that I've, I've been present at with Tottenham. And I, I, was, I was too scared to go on. And I really regret that now, looking back. <laughs> we had a pitch invasion last season at QPR, which at the last game of the season just baffles me. To finish mid-table and to get on the pitch at the end of the campaign. Why? <laughs> only, um, only QPR, Ash. Yeah, really. why? I, I didn't. I just sat there and went, OK, I'm going home. <laughs> I, think, I think there's a pod podcast here Ash I think isn't there a great pitch invasions of the 90s <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah. I'll look into that one Matthew um, right <laughs> let's talk a few little bits what else happened this season um, it was the season of uh, Big Ron back in football and he famously sat in the wrong dugout uh, at Nottingham Forest which we spoke to Big Ron himself about go back in the archive and listen to that Rude Hullet took over in Newcastle um, before we see what happened in the following season and Alan Shearer in the big row uh, Jimmy Glass is a fantastic name from the 90s scored the winner for Carlisle on the last day of the season a goalkeeper on loan from Swindon that kept him up in the Football League fantastic story that um, I'm in map going back to Manchester as well Man City that famous playoff final Division 2 playoff final uh, where they were down and out with sort of minutes to go and then Paul Dickoff equalised and they won that on penalties which is arguably the way up and where we see City today um, going back to the award winners as Chris mentioned Ginola was Football Writers Player of the Year and Player of the Players of the Year. The team of the season was Nigel Martin, Gary Neville, Sol Campbell, Yapstam, Dennis Irwin, David Beckham, Manuel Vetti, Patrick Vieira and David Ginola, and then Dwight York and Nicholas and Nelka up front. Hasselbank, Owen and York shared the golden boot. And um, Before um, we talk briefly about Glenn Hoddle, is there anything you guys wanted to add to 1998-99? Coming to you first, Chris. Yeah, that, that that Jimmy Glass moment, I mean, that's one of the greatest football moments as well. I, I just, Can't I, write that, can, can you? No, exactly. You, you just couldn't comprehend it. I mean, that that, that was voted. Uh, in, I think it was Channel Four did uh, the the great, the most important goals, and I think that came seventh. And it, you know, it clearly was. It kept kept Carlisle in the, in the football league, and um, just I think I had I I started my career uh, two a couple of years later working for CFAX Sport. That was my first job. C and, uh, there was a there was a lot of talk at the, at the time because this was happening a couple of years before I started, and uh, obviously you just get a goal alert, and it just says uh, glass. Mm. 90 minutes and you know unless you unless you really know your football you don't effectively know what the story is there so a lot of people throughout the throughout the the, the, the non-football reporting world wouldn't would have still been thinking well this is a dramatic moment Carlisle have stayed up in the last minute but they wouldn't have known the the fills in and outs of, of of those stories unless you had that kind of greater football knowledge so I think that was actually brought up in my in my job interview to kind of <laughs> prove that you knew, you knew a little bit more yeah. than just the kind of first part that would be sent your way and I think that's why it kind of uh, sticks in my mind so much as well but yeah classic classic moment I'm, I, I, when I was researching for this I, I saw he's, he wrote a book a few years later and I'm, I'm, I've definitely ordered that already because I'd, I'd love to read yeah. from his perspective about um, that kind of defining moment in, in an otherwise uh, journeyman career um, and also I didn't realise he was on the bench in, in that season that I've written my book about 94-95 he was actually on the bench for Crystal Palace against Man U in the FA Cup semi-final, he didn't make it on. He, ne he never appeared uh, for Palace, but he was an unused substitute in the 1995 FA Cup semi-final against uh, uh, against Man U good when Roy Keane was also sent off. Ooh, I think Roy Keane must be the only man to have been sent off in two FA Cup semi-finals, 1995 and 1999. In fact, you don't even need you don't even need semi-final in that sentence. Surely the only man 
sent off in two FA Cup semi-final uh, replays. Sorry, you don't need the word replay, do you? Yeah. you just, I, I can't imagine. And then he got banned from the 99 Champions League final as well. So Roy Keane, amazing career, but could have been even better, really, given mm. the, uh, the amount of suspensions that he had to serve. <laughs> and if you, Matthew, anything else you want to add to 98-99? Yeah, there's a, there's a couple of bits that we, we haven't touched on. I was just going back to Jimmy Glass. It's interesting. I was re- reading about him again doing my... My uh, research the other day. He's driving a taxi now. Apparently, he's running runs a taxi firm in in really? Dorset. Mm. And he's the, on Twitter. Uh, I did try to get in touch yeah. with him, but he's not got back to me yet. And uh, the boots that he wore and scored that goal with are in the uh, National Football Museum. Apparently, so uh, yeah, brilliant. A bit of bit of history there for still. You know, will always be remembered. Yeah. But um, but this season, yeah. Um, well, we didn't mention the Paolo Di Canio pushing Paul Alcock over. Oh, of the, course, uh, that is on my that list. And I, yeah, that's on the back of my sheet. <laughs> yeah, that, yeah it was on mine. So that was this season. Obviously, a, a hugely memorable occasion. I remember being—I can't remember. I think I was at a lower division game that day when that happened, and someone saying, "Oh, De Canio's gone mad. He's pushed the ref," and everyone talking about it as though it was like you know, you know, the biggest thing going, which I suppose it was at the time. But um, so, I didn't yeah, realise that was that season. That was that was an amazing thing. You just couldn't yeah. believe that he had done that, and also the. The semi, obviously, it shouldn't have happened, but the the the, the, the comical way that Paul, Paul Alcock went down. Yeah. Every time you watch that, he just he kind of falls in. Well, he falls in installments, doesn't he? It takes him about ten little stutters back before he's on on the floor. But um, and, and the comical the comical reaction of Nigel Winterburn as well. He was giving it some. To, he was giving them a send off, wasn't he? And then Decanio turned around and Winterburn nearly hit the deck. <laughs> Yes, I remember that. <laughs> a great moment, especially because years later, Canio was the, the saint, wasn't he, by picking that ball up? And was it Paul Gerrard was knocked out in the Everton yeah. game, if I remember? But yeah, to, uh, yeah, great, great moment, great shout there, Matthew. And the other thing I just wanted to mention was, do you remember the B Sky B potential takeover of United? Mm. It was in this season, yes. six hundred million pounds. Uh, Murdoch and Sky were going to take over United. In the end, it got rejected on by the Monopolies and Mergers Committee, I think, didn't it? Because they thought it was yeah. you know, Sky and having a, a vested interest. But I just remember the hostility to it at the time and how funny it is now to think that cl- clubs are almost begging for chairman or you know, millionaire owners to come in and take their club over. But back then, there was so much suspicion and, uh, and hostility around the, the, at the time. But uh, obviously, it, it happened in one way or the other with the Glazers. But I just remember it being such a... You know, such a big deal. But now, I think clubs would roll over it if anyone came at them with six hundred million quid. To be honest, mm. it was. A, there was a lot of talk of the European Super League that year as well. I haven't included that because again, it was very conjecture and it wasn't really a lot of meat to the sandwich. But there was talk of that as well. That's probably involved. Yeah. Um, let's quickly talk Glenn Hoddle. Um, we know everybody knows the story of what happened. He was sacked uh, in January of this season uh, due to comments made to the Times about disabled people. Uh, I mean, have your opinions changed over the years in terms of this? I mean, it's, it's a little bit apt in what's happened to Mark Sansom in a way, and the way he was he was been uh, terminated uh, last week. What are your feelings, Chris, on the Hoddle situation of that season? Yeah, I think I mean, obviously, Glenn Hoddle, absolute hero as a Tottenham player. Um, I think even at the time, I thought that he, he had to go. Really, I, I thought he did a, he did a good job in the '98 World Cup, and mm. I think it was it was gutting that he didn't get a chance to build on that. But I don't think as a as the national team manager, you can, I mean, those are his beliefs. I mean, it, it's tricky. That's what he genuinely believes. Although he's, he did say to me that he never said these things yeah. uh, to the, to the journalist, um, Matt Dickinson, I think it was, he yeah, got, he was, yeah. got the scoop. Um, but if uh, I can't imagine that Matt Dickinson uh, conjured this all out, up out of thin air. Um, so those beliefs, if he has those beliefs, he's, you're kind of entitled to your beliefs, but as you know, if you're a disabled England fan, to think that the 
the England manager thinks that you're paying for the sins of a, a former life. I mean, how can you fully get behind that team? And the England team is supposed to be for everybody. So I don't think the FA really could stand by him at the time. Um, they do have to consider more than just um, a man's or woman's football abilities. Um, they've got to look at the wider picture. And I think I think I don't think they had an option really. It's, it's a shame because I think he could have gone on uh, to do better things for England, perhaps. But I I think they had to do what what they did really. Matthew, I think I think Chris has put it quite clearly there, and as, it is a shame because I think Hoddle had something with that England team, didn't it? But you can't say things like that as the in the sort of manner and the role that you are as the England manager. No, uh, I agree. I mean, it's difficult because I'm one of these people that think thinks football now is so sanitised. I mean, we were talking about John Gregory earlier, and you know, and I love to hear people come out and say exactly what they think. Yeah. And, yeah. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. so there is there is a fine line, but like we say, that is pretty much you know as close to the knuckle as you can get. So. Um, so yeah, it probably was for the best. It's, it's funny that all these years on, England managers are still paying the price for you know their actions off the field. You know, yeah. it hasn't changed, has it? With you know Allardyce and then with the, the Sams, like like you say, uh, recently. But yeah. um, there's talk there. Is, I've heard people say that um, Hoddle always should come back to England in a in a co- coaching capacity or whatever. I wonder whether he ever could. I wonder if this you know because it was so long ago. I wonder whether he would ever be it would ever almost be forgotten. But, yeah. you know, or it's a I don't, I don't, I don't think the media would allow for it to be forgotten. I think they'd have to. I mean, he would be asked the question again, and only if he said that he had changed his uh, changed his mind on that would I think he would mm. at that point perhaps have a chance of coming back. But I think if he if he still believes that, then that's the first thing a journalist is going to ask him. And I, I don't think from that point that the FA would be able to to give him another crack in any capacity. That that's just my hunch. Yeah, um, yeah no, I agree. But I'm sure in a, in a football sense, he he still does have a lot to offer the game I would have thought him and Jerry yeah. Francis is another name who I still think is unbelievable that he's not in a bigger role in coaching I know he does a lot of scouting but it's another well, he's great first, yeah, he's, he's first team coach at West Brom now so he has he's, he's stuck around in the you know he's had a 50 year career in, in football and he's, he's been with uh, Tony Pulis at, at Stoke and then Palace and, and now up at, at West Brom so he still has an in, input in the Premier League um, he was asked the other day he, he went on TalkSport and they asked him a few questions about our book and I was asked whether he'd like to get back in as a manager, and he, he said, as a manager, no, he, he's, he's very happy doing the, mm. the the first team coaching role that he's, he's doing right now. So, um, uh, and he did mention that you know, never say never, because obviously we've just seen Roy Hodgson come back in. Course, I didn't actually realise that Roy Hodgson was seventy until that until he took the Palace job. He didn't he didn't feel quite that old, mm. old to me. He felt <laughs> like you know mid mid sixties, but that you know that's quite a thing, isn't he? The oldest man to take over in in, in the Premier League to, to 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 get the job at the age of. 70 in the Premier League has never happened before and Roy Hodgson's the oldest to take over and you, you do wonder how much he obviously wants to make amends for, for what went wrong with, with England but you do wonder how much that will have taken out of him and you saw I think I think the England experience and then the Tottenham experience kind of all came too early for, for Glenn Hoddle really he was still yeah. quite young wasn't he when he had those, those jobs it's, it's quite hard to, re- to recover after a after it goes wrong uh, with England, as it, it does for pretty much everyone who uh, takes the job. Yeah, it's, it's a poison chalice, as they say. Yes. Um, we're running out of time, so we've only got one more thing remaining left to do here on today's show, which is pluck another obscure name from the 90s past. Matthew, you, you particularly know the drill now. Let's talk yeah. about a player that 90s forgot. Give us a name. Well, I've picked a pretty obscure name, literally. It's um, And it's quite topical as well, after having what we've just discussed. It's Orlando Trustful. <laughs> Um, Sheffield Wednesday (laughs) yeah he signed he played for Sheffield Wednesday under 
David Pleat, I think, was the manager there. Was it uh, 97? I think he was there. Uh, played 19 games <clears throat> and scored three goals. And then I think he signed for he signed from Feyenoord, I think. And he played from played for a couple of Dutch teams. Come to Sheffield Wednesday, classic mid 90s mm. foreign foreign import that everyone seen. You know, every club thought they had to have. And he was he was one of them. And uh, apart from being having a fantastic and memorable name, great name. I don't I don't think he did anything memorable in the. Uh, in the Premier League, definitely but, not in the Premier League. No. But, but saying that, he's gone on to he went on to become assistant manager with Frank De Boer at Crystal Palace, didn't he? Yeah, and uh, on the bench uh, there, yeah, yeah. And obviously, I think he was he played for he was in the Holland squad in the year '96, and he was I think he was assistant manager at Ajax. Was it? So he, he's obviously had something to offer, but it just wasn't a Sheffield Wednesday from what I could see. No, great name, uh, Chris. Have you got another name you can pluck from us from the '90s? <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's not as obscure as that, but I've gone for Kobe Jones. Oh, legend. Yeah, maybe he's not quite as obscure as you're looking for, but um, just it kind of chimed in with, with what Spurs did after the uh, after the World Cup, signing uh, players who had had a great World Cup. And I think it's funny looking back that that happened a lot. Um, we only, didn't we as fans, we only really got a chance to see these uh, other players in World Cups and yeah. European Championships. And it, it really does prove that the clubs really only had the chance to see them then as well, because... Coventry went out and signed uh, Kobe Jones, who he'd had a very good tournament for for the US, probably with no idea as to whether he would um, settle into English football. He was playing on the wing, wasn't he? And uh, I think he did okay for them. Um, looking back, I did. I, I saw he only scored two goals, but he, he just felt like something different. He had the the dreadlocked hair. Yeah. He had his own style. Um, there was, I think, for us as English fans, we we kind of had a bit of a we looked down on the US a lot of the time, didn't we? Thinking how could a uh, Anyone in the US really take soccer seriously? To, you know, how can they create any any good players who could who could come to these shores? And yeah, it's not like he set the world alight, but I think he came to the Premier League and proved that he, he could fit into that company. Um, so yeah, I, I like the way that that kind of happened a lot. You would you'd, you'd see the World Cup and you you notice players who had a good tournament, and then lo and behold, they would. Uh, end up in the Premier League a few months later. Mm. And so many of them failed as well. Oh, yeah, an awful <laughs> yeah. lot of them really did, yeah. Well, as Alexi Lalas told us on the, the 50th episode we did, he actually had the chance to sign for Coventry as well, along with Kobe, so that had been interesting okay. if you had both of them. Yeah. Um, of course, he gives me the chance as well, if you've got your bingo cards ready, to mention the United States Away kit from 1994, because Kobe wore that, <laughs> the greatest kit of all time, and he's one of his 164 appearances for America, which is pretty impressive. Uh, good names, good show. Thank you very much, guys. Thank you for that. Enjoyed that, and our last countdown season by season do keep an eye on the twitter feed to what we are doing next um, maybe some player ones that's kind of been on my mind for a while so keep an eye out and we'll let you know what's going on um before we go though where can you guys where can people follow you on the twitter chris where can people find you on social network yeah you can follow me on twitter at chris Slegg. i've also got a, a twitter account for, for the two Tottenham books i've written uh, a love for the lane which was all about uh, some of the greatest games at White Hart Lane and and the team that dared to do, which I've written with Jerry Francis, is out at the moment. So that that Twitter ca- account is called A Love for the Lane. Brilliant. Put it on your Christmas list, Tottenham fans. And as I said, there will be a tweet on our Twitter feed to win a copy of the book. So look out for that. And Matthew, where can people find you? Yeah, uh, Twitter at Matthew J Christ and MatthewChrist.co.uk for a whole host of mostly retro-based football articles, um, looking at old players and old games and things that we basically talk about on this show, really. And the Anglo-Italian <laughs> so, Cup. You love a bit of the Anglo-Italian and the, and Cup. And the Anglo-Italian Cup, yeah. And uh, yes, all that, all that kind of stuff. All, so. all that jazz. Um, so yeah. thank you very much, guys. It's been a pleasure, as always. Um, look out for us on Twitter, as I said, for what we're doing next. But until then, I've been Ash Rose. This is Alive and Kicking. Until next time, keep it 90s. Yeah.